0: Well, uh, you've been looking at the solas of the Reformation, and uh, someone was gracious enough to, to give me the one I'm most passionate about. Actually, uh, of all of the solas, the one that I, I love most from a doctrinal perspective is the first one you studied, Sola Fide, and the doctrine of justification by faith. But the one that I am most passionate about is the one we're going to talk about tonight, Soli Deo Gloria, or... or the glory of God alone and I want to suggest to you that our primary passion as Christians and especially uh, those of us who are part of the church serving in the church our primary passion in everything we do should be the glory of God think of all the energy we invest in other things sports and uh, you know there's a Super Bowl and March Madness and then uh, I don't know the World Series last year the World Series was practically a religious experience for us because Darlene and I are Cubs fans, and the Cubs won after 108 years. And so that unleashed a lot of passion. But the fact is, whatever you spend, whatever hobby you have, whatever you spend your spare time and excess emotional energy on, know this, you should be more passionate about the glory of God. And if you don't have more passion for God's glory, uh, if you don't have any passion for God's glory, you certainly need to readjust your focus. Because if there is one thing we should be passionate about, it's the glory of God. There is no greater reality in all the universe. There's nothing more worthy of our deepest, most heartfelt emotion than God's glory. This is the very end for which we were created, to relish the glory of God and to reflect his glory and and to rejoice in the privilege of basking in and declaring that glory to the world. And all of the Reformed confessions of faith and catechisms say that. In fact, the very first answer in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is it says it like this Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And the glory of God, of course, is one of the central themes of Scripture. God's glory features prominently in all of the major eras of Old Testament history. You have the visible Shekinah glory, the cloud that that led the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. You have the visible reflection of God's glory that made Moses' face shine when he came down from Sinai. You have the vivid descriptions of divine glory around the heavenly throne in Isaiah 6, and, and then again in Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10. And all of those passages in the Old Testament mention the visible, palpable splendor of God's glory and of course the the beauty of divine glory is something you can't really describe verbally very well it's indescribable it's unimaginable and it's mysterious and in fact if you want to see that turn to don't don't do it right now but go home and look at Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel's Account. It it is, in particular, a breathless narrative about bright lights and amazing angelic creatures, lightning flashes, and intricate interconnected wheels with countless eyes and sparkling facets like awesome crystal and and colorful gemstones. And it's such a stunning vision. And speaking of passion, it provoked in Ezekiel terror and astonishment and unspeakable awe, and great affection, and deep humility. Those are all passions that should arise in our hearts when we contemplate the the glory of God. And as we read Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10, without actually seeing what Ezekiel was seeing, it's really impossible to envision the spectacle. Read that, and it'll leave you more mystified than gratified. Uh, In fact, the most popular New Age theory is that Ezekiel was describing a massive UFO, you know, like like a scene out of Close Encounters or something. And of course, that's nonsense. I, I don't think any amount of special effects wizardry could accurately portray the majesty of what Ezekiel saw and described to us. And in fact, his verbal description gives us really just the barest hint of it. All that really comes through is, is a sense of indescribable grandeur and unfathomable radiance, beauty far beyond the reach of any human explanation, infinite brilliance. It's a vision you can't perceive from mere words alone. And if you can read e- Ezekiel's account of it and not have a passionate longing to see it with your own eyes, you must have a heart of stone. It's something I want to see, and it's clear from the Old Testament alone that a passion for God's glory, a desire to see God's glory, is one of the key evidences of authentic faith. And in fact, a yearning to see and perceive God's glory is perhaps the truest expression of saving faith and genuine love for God. I, I cannot wait to see the full display of God's glory with my own eyes. The thought of it frightens me and intimidates me, but I want it more than anything in this world. And that is the, the, whether you've thought about it or not, that is the deepest hope of every true believer who thinks carefully about everything that awaits for us in heaven. And, And that's always been the hope of true believers. Moses desperately wanted to see God's face. And even though he knew that an unhindered look at the radiance of God would be fatal to him as a fallen creature, he wanted to see it and Moses did get to see some of the glory of God through a shielded view from behind and only as that glory receded did Moses get such a small glimpse as it was going away from him and the splendor of that little peak at the glory of God reflected with such a glow off Moses' face that the people of Israel were frightened for their lives when they saw how Moses' face shone, and they begged him to cover it up with a veil. David, likewise, longed to see the glory of God face to face, and in Psalm 17, 15, he said that was the one thing he knew would ultimately satisfy him. All of his desires All of his longings, the object of his every passion, lay in that one goal. He wanted an unhindered view of the glory of God. Now, man was created to enjoy and reflect that glory. That's what we were made for. And that means that uh, because our race was designed to be the perfect vehicle for God's likeness, we were designed to be living lanterns through which God's own glory would shine and be reflected. That's what Scripture means in Genesis 1.27 when it says, God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him. Sin marred the image of God in all of us and and left us with a deep longing for what Adam lost. That's really the root of all of our unfulfilled desires because we can't be what we were made to be. And it leaves us with an aching desire in our heart. And it's that passion that needs to be needs to be channeled and, and arrested and focused on the glory of God. It's a longing that can only be satisfied by God's glory. And that's just another reason that God's glory is the one thing in the universe that ought to inflame our deepest passions more than anything else. In other words, Not only is God's glory inherently worthy of all of our affections, it's the very thing our affections were created for in the first place. It's also the only thing that can ultimately satisfy those basic longings that we feel in the human heart. A lot of life's sins and frustrations would be eliminated if we could just keep that in mind and keep focused on the glory of God. One of the central truths of the New Testament is that the glory of God has now been revealed to us in a better and different way that won't kill us if we look it straight in the eye. The the fullness of God's glory is now embodied in its perfection, in all of its perfection, in human form, in the person of Jesus Christ. He is what Adam was designed to be and more. He doesn't merely mirror the glory of God. He's not just a vehicle for the glory of God. He is the incarnation of that glory. He he lets us see not what Moses saw, a fading reflection of the divine glory. Christ personifies that glory in all of its fullness. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. 2 Corinthians 4.6, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all now with unveiled face Beholding in Christ the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. Now, consider how passionate those Old Testament saints were when they were privileged from time to time to glimpse visible manifestations of divine glory, always from behind veils or in in shadowy and cloudy form, we ought to be so much more passionate about the glory of God embodied in the person and the character of Christ because we can see that glory, we can, we can feast on that glory without any veil on our faces. We can study it, we can enjoy it, we can, by the Holy Spirit's enablement, we can reflect it and lift it up for the whole world to see. And that's what we ought to be most passionate about. That's what we ought to be more concerned about than all the sports teams we our faces for and whatnot. And certainly the glory of God ought to stir our passions and our energies much more than some mud-spattered sports team whose only glory is always meager and fleeting, and if you cheer for the same teams I do, it's maybe not even that good. And by the way, the passions stirred by a clear vision of God's glory aren't necessarily going to be warm and comforting and, you know, feeling good, it's, it's not always a good feeling. In fact, it's much more likely that the first time someone has a glimpse of God's glory, the result is intense fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's Psalm 11, verse 10. In fact, do a study on this in Scripture, and take note of how people normally respond when they first see God for who He is. They fall on their faces in sheer terror almost every time. And God's glory also provokes profound amazement and wonder. Sometimes it's delight and rejoicing. You know, Peter fell on his face and confessed his sin when he first began to realize who Jesus was. But by the time he'd spent time with Christ and, and become accustomed to this glory, and he gets up on the Mount of Transfiguration and sees that glory with all the veils pulled back in literal shining brightness, he sounds almost giddy then. He wants to stay there forever. All of those are legitimate emotions. And if they're real, that passion will make a lasting difference in us. It's not an artificial pat passion. You can't stir it up by, you know, stadium cheers and and moving music and all of that. You can stir your emotions. But that's artificial religious passion, which is one of the banes of our age, frankly, and it's a powerful detriment to the church's testimony when our passions are artificial. On the other hand, if we really grasped and meditated on how the glory of God is revealed to us in Christ, we wouldn't need any artificial gimmicks to stir our passions, and we we certainly would never dream that we need to make God seem better or more glorious to the world than he actually is. And tonight I want to take you to a single text, a passage of Scripture that speaks of the incarnation of God's glory, and it describes for us in as few words as possible what that glory is like. It's a familiar verse, first chapter of John's Gospel, one Most of you probably know by heart, John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, let's just break that verse down again uh, uh, for a minute. The, the Word, of course, is talking about Christ. The Word became flesh. He is both the starting point and the central focus of the Gospel of John, unlike Matthew and Luke, uh, John doesn't start his gospel with the human genealogy of the birth of Christ. He he goes even further back. He goes back as far as it's possible to go into eternity past. And he starts in the same place as Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. That is, at the dawn of creation, before time began. John is giving us Jesus' divine pedigree. He's showing us that Christ is eternally God. And that's important to this idea that he embodies the glory of God. He is God. And in fact, uh, the Apostle John states his case as explicitly as possible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, this is the creator, the one who made every created thing, and therefore by definition, he cannot himself be a created being. He made everything that was made. The foundations of Trinitarian doctrine are are established by this passage, of course, and and I I probably don't need to defend the deity of Christ to most of you, I'm sure, but just note that this entire chapter, in fact, the whole book of John, is is an unambiguous affirmation of the eternal deity of Christ, not just the phrase, the Word was God, that's important, but every proposition in this passage affirms the deity of Christ and John's main point in the extended passage is to declare that the glory of this person whom he describes as the Word, the divine Lagos, his glory is an innate, intrinsic glory. It's not a glory that was bestowed on him, it's not a created glory. It's not a reflected glory. But the Lagos possesses the glory of God in all its fullness and all its ineffability. Verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That is the eternal glory of God, that light that shines in the darkness, and, and the darkness can't overcome. But then follows... Verses 6 through 8, which talk about John the Baptist, whose mission it was, verse 8, to bear witness about the light. In other words, to declare the glory of God in Christ. Christ is, verse 9, the true light, which enlightens everyone. And John's mission was to announce that the light was coming into the world. That's what he was sent to do. Verse 11, he, that's the Lagos, Christ, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him but... All who did receive him, who believed in his name, were reborn, saved, delivered from the guilt and the condemnation of their sins. This is God, the Savior. Now, look at this. Everything from verse 6 through verse 13 is a a digression. It's like a parenthesis in the the line of thought. It's a crucial digression. This is John, the, the Apostle John's first summary of gospel truth. This is a brief summary of gospel truth. This is the first time he's given it. But then in verse 14, he comes back to the point he started with. In the beginning was the Word, eternal God, the Creator, the eternal and only begotten Son of God. He was in the beginning with God. And then verse 14 completes that thought and shows where John has been going from that first sentence and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, you may have heard, I'm sure, that the, the expression here, He dwelt among us, that's actually from a Greek term that speaks of tent camping. Its literal translation could say, He tabernacled among us. And it's a fitting word picture because. The glory of God filled the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35 describe when Moses completed construction of the original tabernacle. It was that portable tent where they worshiped. Scripture says Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Twice it says that. And likewise then, when Solomon completed the first permanent temple in Jerusalem, 2 Chronicles verse seven, or chapter 7, verses 1 and 2 says, as soon as Solomon finished his dedicatory prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple and the priests couldn't enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. Do you see the parallel there? Likewise, in Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 4, when the prophet Ezekiel is describing this vision of the inner court of the heavenly tabernacle, he writes this, And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And again, in Ezekiel 43, verse 5, he says, "...the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple." And then, if you jump to the end of the New Testament, the Apostle John's apocalyptic vision of heaven, he says the same thing, Revelation fifteen eight: "...the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple." So, think about this. Whenever you have the presence of God in any tabernacle, in any temple, in any place of worship... If God is there, the place is full of glory. Christ's human body is a tabernacle, enabling him to dwell with humanity, and yet without divesting himself of any aspect of his deity. And so naturally, this tabernacle, the earthly body of Christ, is full of glory. And that's what John is saying. He's full of glory. But he describes the glory of Christ... In a distinctive way, and that's what I want you to notice tonight. Glory, it says, full of grace and truth. There are three key nouns in that expression. Glory, grace, and truth. And I I want to spend a little bit of time with each one of them. Everything up to this point is introduction, and I'm going to do my best to finish on time. But I want to spend a little time with each of those words, each of those nouns, I want to get into the meat of this text, and we'll do it by considering one at a time each of these words, glory, grace, and truth. We'll start with glory, because that's our theme. And I've already said quite a lot about the term glory, but you may notice I haven't attempted to define it yet. John Piper, who has perhaps written more about the glory of God than anyone else in our generation, says that word glory is impossible to define. He says, It's not like a basketball, you know, something with precise dimensions that you can touch and hold and put in a box or take a picture of. But Piper says, and rightly so, I think, that glory is like the word beauty in that we know what it is, but we find it impossible to express adequately in words. How do you define beauty? It's just as hard, maybe harder to describe glory. And so I agree with Piper on that, in fact, glory is an even bigger concept than beauty. And in fact, everything you could possibly say about true beauty is just one aspect of what we mean when we talk about the glory of God. But Piper then does go ahead and set forth a kind of provisional definition of God's glory, and I like it because it's short and to the point. He says this, he says, quote, The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. So, in other words, all of God's perfections, which are all full of beauty, put it all together, and what you've got is glory. And it's pretty hard to improve on that definition, but as Piper said to begin with, the words don't really do justice to the concept. Scripture describes God as resplendent in glory, unspeakably majestic, overpoweringly radiant, irresistibly powerful, and consummately holy. Exquisitely wonderful and breathtakingly awe-inspiring. And glory is a shorthand word that gathers up all of that and includes all of it and more. A A glimpse of the glory of God is simply the most compelling, amazing, also most terrifying and most beautiful sight human eyes could ever hope to see. God's glory is more moving, more exciting, more powerful than any other stimulus that has ever stirred the human heart. You can't think rightly about the glory of God without being moved with the deepest kind of passion. And frankly, in one way or another, the glory of God stirs just about every legitimate passion you could name. God's glory is everything we ought to love. It summarizes and incorporates everything that matters from eternity past to eternity future. It's the only thing that makes this world and all its evil worth enduring. It's the one thing that makes sense of everything else. If it's what God created everything for in the first place and this is where all of God's creatures find their true and ultimate purpose. He made us to love His glory. To enjoy it. Now we sometimes you've heard the expression, "Giving God glory." We speak of giving God glory, and that's a biblical expression. Joshua seven nineteen. Joshua said to Achan, "My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to Him." First Samuel six verse five. Give glory to the God of Israel. Isaiah twenty four fifteen. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. So that's a common expression, give glory to God. It doesn't mean, though, that we can add something to the glory of God or increase the splendor of his glory by something we do. We don't, we don't magnify the glory of God in the sense that we add something to it or make him more glorious. To, to give God glory or to magnify his glory simply means to give him praise. We glorify God, in other words, not by making him more glorious than he is, that would be impossible, We give him glory by declaring his glory with our lips and by reflecting his glory in our lives. And there's a necessary aspect of humility that is necessarily involved in giving God glory. In Acts 12, Herod was stricken down and He died a very sudden and horrible death in front of a crowd who were shouting his praise. You remember that story? Scripture says he was eaten by worms, immediately eaten by worms, according to Luke. And Luke was a doctor, so he knows what's going on there. And I gather that Herod was infected by, you know, medical science says it's probably some bubonic form of flatworms that incubate in larval form in a mass like a tumor and when that mass of larva bursts, it causes intense pain and often a very quick death. I mean, quick in the sense it takes about an hour or so, which, depending on whether you're the one dying or the one watching it, maybe it isn't so quick. But Acts 12.23 says, this happened to Herod. He was stricken dead, eaten by worms, because, this is the, these are the words of scripture, because he did not give God the glory in other words, he tried to claim for himself glory that belongs to God alone. And, and as Luke describes it, Herod was in the very act of accepting worship from his subjects as if he were God incarnate. Now, that, you may think, well, that's something only a guy like Herod could do. But the fact is, we do it all the time. If we want, every time we want our will to determine what we do, in opposition to the will of God, we are trying to claim his glory. We're trying to make ourselves God. So the very opposite of that then would be to give glory to God, to declare God's glory, to acknowledge that God alone is worthy of all praise, or or to fear and yet adore the grandeur of God's glory, to praise him with our hearts and minds and lips and to reflect his glory in the humble, obedient way we live our lives. That's how you give God glory. And, in, and think about it. That is exactly how Christ manifested the glory of God as a man, except instead of reflecting the glory of God, he literally embodied and radiated with that glory. As our text says, he was full of grace and truth. Uh, it's one of the reasons I believe in the impeccability of Christ. In other words, he couldn't sin. He wouldn't sin. There was never any possibility that he would sin because there was nothing in him that sin could appeal to. He was full of grace and glory. In John 14, 30, Jesus himself said, the ruler of this world, that Satan, has nothing in me. So, in other words, in Christ, there was no evil motive. There was no sinful desire. There were no erroneous beliefs. None of our fallenness nothing in him that Satan could exploit against Christ and, and, and no claim that the devil could make against him. He was quite simply full of grace and truth. Now, none of us is full of grace and truth. In fact, in our fallen state, in our natural fallen state, we are utterly devoid of both grace and truth, and we are as believers even, utterly dependent on the Spirit of God to supply those virtues for us. And only as we trust Him for that can we truly reflect His glory. And any glory we have is a reflected glory. It's not our own. But here's what I want you to notice about this. There's a distinct difference between the many ways God's glory was manifest in the Old Testament and the way that glory has been brought to us through Christ in the New Testament. The Old Testament manifestations of glory always centered on the sparkle and the spectacle of visible radiance. You have the cloud of Shekinah glory, which illuminated the camp of Israel at night. So I presume that in the daytime, that same cloud probably shone with a peculiar radiance that made it not like any of the other clouds in the sky. You have the glow that lit up Moses' face in reflection, in a reflection that was so powerful it took time to diminish. You have the gemstones and wheels and crystals and lightning flashes in Ezekiel's vision. Everything the glory of God touches either glows or shines or sparkles or flashes in some way. The stress is always on the visible radiance in the Old Testament. The other aspects of glory are all there, of course. God's holiness, His goodness and all that. But when you think of the glory of God in the Old Testament, what stands out are the bright physical displays of visible divine luminescence. Glory is pictured as blinding and stunning and like the brightest conceivable light. Now, of course, it's the same glory in the New Testament. It's glory as of the only Son of the Father. It is God's glory. So even here in John 1, and really throughout the Gospel of John, that divine glory is repeatedly spoken of as light. The light of men, verse four. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness is not overcome it, verse 5. Christ himself is the true light who lights every man, verse 9. But the stress here, it seems to me, is not on the visible brilliance of physical light. The emphasis here in Christ and throughout the New Testament is on spiritual light, that which enlightens us with grace and truth. And now that in no way diminishes or alters the physical brilliance of divine glory and on the Mount of Transfiguration in one stunning moment during his earthly ministry, Christ pulled back the veil of his humanity and allowed Peter, James, and John to see the physical manifestation of that glory as he shone from head to foot with a glow that must have been impossible to stare at with the eyes of flesh, because Matthew 17:2 says, he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And when John says, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the Father, I'm certain the glory of the transfiguration is a key aspect of the of the point he's making when he says, we've seen his glory. He'd seen it on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw that glory in its fullness in a way that even most of the disciples didn't get to see. And and by the way, the expression John uses here is a definitive affirmation of the deity of Christ. Christ's glory, John says, is the glory of God himself. That's the point he's making. He calls it glory as of the only Son from the Father. And of course, In a Semitic culture like that, the full-grown son of a king was not of lesser stature than the king himself. The king's son, an adult son, would be treated with the same respect owed to the king. He was deemed one with the king and equal in stature. And that's why in John 5, later on, when Jesus calls God, my father, verse 18 says, the Jews sought to kill him because... He was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God by calling God my father. You know, the Jewish people would, would often use the expression our father because Old Testament portrayed God as a father to the nation of Israel. But no Jew would ever say my father, except Jesus, who spoke of God as his own father. And that became a whole different matter. And they tried to stone him for blasphemy because he was making himself equal with God, and that's an important point of theology. John underscores it here by saying that the glory of Christ is glory as of the only Son from the Father. And the emphasis is on the word only, the Greek term is monogenes, which means it can either mean one of a kind, one one of a kind, literally, or more literally, and as it's translated in the King James Version, the only begotten Son of God. You know, we are adopted sons of God, and He's our Father in that sense. But Christ stands alone as the only begotten Son of God. And you have to understand that. He is eternally begotten. This doesn't mean that He was created or conceived begotten. He's eternal, just as God is. And John makes that point at the outset of this chapter but in some ineffable sense that we can't possibly understand. He is eternally begotten of the Father, and therefore eternally he stands in relationship to God as a -a one-of-a-kind Son, equal with God, God himself, with all the attributes of deity and all the glory of deity. And all of that is wrapped up in what John is saying here. His point is that the glory of Christ is the glory of God. He's not saying it's like God's glory, or that it's merely a reflection of God's glory, or that it's some kind of lesser but similar glory. None of that. He's saying what Jesus Himself said to Philip in John 14:9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Christ's glory is the glory of God, and it's incarnated and put on display for us in human form. So when we talk about Soli Deo Glory, Gloria, the the glory of God alone, the focus is on Christ. It's very similar to the expressions, the solus Christus. The glory of God alone is wrapped up and incarnated in Christ. But it's significant that what John is describing in the next phrase is not the brilliance of physical light or a glow like the brightness of the sun. He seems to bring out instead the moral beauty of God's glory more than the physical glow of it. And so here's his, expre- his description of the glory of God as seen in the incarnation of Christ. He says, It is glory full of grace and truth. And those, of course, are the other two key nouns I want to examine from this text. First, glory. And I've described the idea of glory to the best of my ability with human language in the time I'm allotted. And I confess to you that it falls far short of doing justice to the glory of God, but we have to move on. First, glory. Now, the second noun here, grace. You talked about this last week, I think, with Nate, right? Grace, and, and it goes with truth here, grace and truth, and I, I almost hesitate to break up that pair of words because the linkage here is important, grace and truth. They always go together in Scripture. Grace, of course, is, is God's blessing freely bestowed on sinners, who deserve the exact opposite. They don't deserve God's blessing. They deserve a curse, but grace gives them a blessing instead. Truth, if you want a quick definition, it's reality as seen from God's perspective. You know, we tend to think of truth nowadays, anyway, as something harsh and unyielding. And, and grace we think is something tender and forgiving. So the two words evoke such difference, almost opposite ideas in our minds that we have a hard time bringing them together, but John brings them together here deliberately. Those ideas are inextricably linked throughout Scripture. You try to divorce them, and you will destroy both concepts. Think of it this way. Grace itself is an expression of the character of God, so it cannot be in conflict with truth, because God is truth. And the reverse is true as well. And yet, because those two words seem to contrast in so many ways, we tend to classify them as rivals. Grace on the one hand, truth on the other. We treat them as competing values, and if we're not careful, we begin to think of them as incompatible virtues, and in fact there's an almost irrepressible human tendency to try to split those two ideas as if they were complete opposites and utterly hostile to one another, and that kind of thinking has taken over the visible church in this generation people want to hear all about grace but when you begin to talk about truth it's you don't get the quite the warm welcome in scripture the two ideas go together the term grace as i said speaks of a undeserved kindness and it's all about divine blessings sovereignly bestowed on undeserving sinners as you talked about last week it's the most benevolent and generous of all the divine virtues but Think about what Scripture says about grace. Titus 2.14, grace teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And further, according to Titus 2.14, grace redeems us from all iniquity and purifies us unto God. So authentic grace is never apathetic about truth, and it can't be reduced to the idea of friendship with the world or camaraderie with the enemies of God. In other words, grace doesn't mean, like a lot of people think, doesn't mean always being nice and friendly, especially toward the sworn enemies of truth. And although Jesus, think about Jesus in these terms, although He was full of grace, He was not always tender and mild. In fact, I'd say mild is probably the most inappropriate adjective that's ever been commonly applied to Christ. He was full of grace. Even his harshest public denunciations of the Pharisees had a gracious purpose. They were life-giving words. And although the tone may have been stern or even angry, when Jesus spoke, those were liberating diatribes, especially for the Pharisees who had lived their whole lives in bondage to legalism. But here's an interesting fact that maybe you've never considered. In all of John's gospel the word grace appears only four times. You can search the Gospel of John, you'll find grace only four times. And all four of them are found in this short pericope that begins with verse 14 and ends with verse 17. I think it may be in your bulletin, is that right? So look at it real quickly. You have the word grace once in verse 14. Grace appears twice in verse 16, and then once more in verse 17, is it? And that's it. Outside those three verses... John never uses the word grace anywhere in his gospel. By contrast, the word truth is one of the key words in all of Johannine theology, the epistles of John as well. You'll find the word truth 25 times in the gospel of John alone and 20 more times in the three epistles of John. So he loved that word truth, and he didn't see it as a conflict with grace. And and in fact, you see displays of divine grace in practically every chapter of John's gospel. As John traces the ministry of Christ from incident to incident, there's the grace he showed to the Samaritan woman in John 4, there's grace to the man born blind in John 9, grace as he washes the disciples' feet in John 13, and on and on. You read the gospel of John, and the whole thing reads like a commentary on that expression, full of grace. That's how John portrays Christ throughout. He's gracious towards sinners, relentlessly aggressive in his opposition to the enemies of truth at the same time. And that is authentic grace in action. Grace as I said cannot be apathetic about truth. So consider now that third word in this trilogy, glory, grace, and now truth. And I'll finish this up real quickly. Are they telling me to finish? Okay, I'll hurry. We beheld his glory, he says, full of grace and truth. One of the most appealing features of Christ's glory is the way his grace never clouds his love for the truth. He embodied truth. That's that's not all this expression signifies. He's full of truth. He was a proclaimer and an expositor and a defender of the truth. And in John 8, 45, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. And so he frequently contrasted this idea of truth uh, with the lies of the Pharisees. And that was gracious teaching. So again, you you can't divide those two words. Grace and truth defined the earthly mission of Christ. He came not only to seek and to save the lost, but also to bear witness to the truth. And those who lack a compassionate concern for the truth can't really claim to be passionate about the glory of God. Christ is the model of that. I'm going to skip to the end. Now, really I can't. I have to say this. Because I want you to notice one more time that these two same concepts appear in verse 17. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He's not saying that the Mosaic Covenant was devoid of grace or truth. He's certainly not saying that Moses gave us a different way of salvation and that Christ changed that. Here's what he means. The prominent feature of the Mosaic Covenant was the law. But the law itself had no saving efficacy. By contrast, grace and truth are the whole substance of the new covenant. That's why it's a better covenant. The old covenant, the tabernacle contained scrolls of law. The new tabernacle is full of grace. The old tabernacle was filled with types and figures. The new tabernacle is full of truth. Christ is superior to the law in every sense. And that, of course, is the heart of the gospel message. Whereas the law rebukes our sin and threatens us with eternal punishment, Christ paid the price of sin and offers the water of life freely. And that means my salvation from sin is an expression of God's glory. He's glorified by making me and you, all believers, joint heirs, with Christ, even though what we really deserve is punishment forever in hell. God has expressed His glory through Christ in a way that washes every believer completely clean of all sin and guilt, and God's glory is magnified in the outworking of that redemptive work. And if that's not a reason enough for you to be passionately, zealously, earnestly enthralled with the glory of God... Then you need to pray for a new heart. Let's pray. Father, we confess that too often we forfeit the benefits of your grace because we consume ourselves and invest our energies in things that aren't worthy of our passions. So we pray, Lord, that you would give us a true love for your glory. Give us a glimpse of that glory so that our hearts might be melted with true passion, that our very souls might be transfigured from glory to glory in the perfect likeness of Christ, who's the incarnation of your blessed glory. We come to you in his name with the earnest expectation that you always answer. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.